Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as we continue to bring to you the RipperCon, Jack the Ripper and True Crime Convention. Next up is an excellent presentation by Michael Hawley with Dr. Francis Tumblety, amongst the best suspects. Mike is the author of several fiction and non-fiction books, including The Ripper's Hellbroth, Jack's Lantern, and most recently, The Ripper's Haunts which is a non-fiction book about the subject of his Baltimore talk, Francis Tumblety. His research and writings have long been a part of the Tumblety as suspect debate on casebook.org, and as the talk you are about to hear will illustrate, Mike Hawley is amongst the top Tumblety researchers active in the field of Ripperology today. His talk at Baltimore spanned two days of the event, and so we've put both slots into one show, And you can download the complete set of slides on the episode's podcast page. So that's enough for me, and I'll turn it over to Mike Hawley on Francis Tumblety. Okay, thank you very much, and hello. Um, Thank you for the introduction. And so far, every one of these, uh, those that have spoken before me, I just loved. So it's, uh, it's great. I got one. I got one of them that signed a book. That was great. <laughs> Hi, Martin. So now, in this case, what we have is uh, this to me, and I, to everyone. Even though uh, so many people have said yes or no on the suspect status of Francis Tumbley, he is so interesting. Such an interesting character. And then so. What happened was because I was in Buffalo, and, and my the first book was on a completely different subject that actually Chris had posted about. The uh, I was waiting for that to get published, and so I was just kind of waiting, pins and needles, and then uh, lo and behold, uh, I found out about this person that was buried an hour and a half away from me. This is uh, Francis Tumbley buried in Rochester. So, so when I went and I found him, and I looked for him, and his name is not spelled Tumbley, it's Tumulty. And some people thought, I even read a book, uh, it was like a ghost book talking about it, saying that how ironic is, they even spelled his na- last name wrong. But I think that's the correct spelling. As, that's more later research, but one a lady from Ireland will show that, um, that also the, the monument is granite. So I think that came from Tumbley's money as well. But when the, his mother passed away years earlier. But that's another discussion. We'll go to this here. So this is Francis Tumbley, amongst the best suspects. So three things I want to talk about today. First is, how significant of a suspect was he in the eyes of Scotland Yard? Ever since Stuart Evans discovered that little child letter in 1993, then 1995 uh, wrote about it, uh, that it kind of shocked everyone that here for about 100 years we haven't heard of this suspect, not only a suspect, but maybe a major suspect. But after that, other research have got, researchers have gotten involved and kind of looks like minimalized the status of him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show some stuff, newer stuff since then. So I, I talk about some of these people that have been researching Sometimes in a negative light, but actually it's very positive for them because they're very credible people, researchers, so uh, that have really convinced a lot of people because of that, I need to speak about it. And then uh, why was he suspected? And then does he warrant being a valid suspect by modern standards? So I want to talk about that as well. So we'll start here. Right here, the very first time that we see that Francis Tumbley was a suspect was November 18th in a number of newspapers around the country 
This one right here is the, the Chicago Daily Tribune, November 18th. And his, it doesn't say Cumbledy, it says Cumbledy with a K. So Dr. Cumbledy, and this is the very first report. And it was, uh, and so this is one of the uh, nice thing about nowadays, this is actually the actual newspaper report from the uh, Chicago Daily Tribune. I'm gonna turn this so I can see it. Okay, and again, it's the very first time we see that he's implicated. So where did the Cumberland story come from? Who broke the story? And did it come from Cumberland himself? So lots of people think that maybe it came from New York City. A uh, little bit of sensationalism. And this guy was from New York City. So, And also, Cumberland was known to uh, try to market himself. And so would that have been the case? I think today might be some definitive, definitive answers to that. So first of all, we can find out the copyright on this line says the owner is New York World. It does say the, the press pub company, but that was the parent company of the New York World at the time. And it says sent by cable. And so, and, uh, so we have uh, the, at that time there was an Associated Press. The five big New York newspapers got involved with that, but that's not what this is. This is the New York World actually was selling their dispatches. And, uh, um, and so a lot, you can see some of these, these uh, newspapers um, paid the New York World for these. And so one of the things is, is when the Cumberly letter came out or the Cumberly uh, story came out, the New York World did not report it. But actually they did. They reported that article. They just left out the company story, the other stories they have. So they actually did report this, this cable. So here is kind of the front one here, the, the first part of the November 18th New York World. And, but it also shows the copy, uh, it, New York World since, uh, let's say, the, when the Chicago Daily Tribune wrote it, they wrote a copyright on there just uh, to let the world know that they didn't have it. It was from the New York World. So the New York World sometimes did that, but they didn't always have to do that because it was their story. So, and the origin line says London. So the New York World actually had a London correspondent. They called themselves, or uh, they were called special correspondents. War correspondents would be called uh, special correspondents as well. And you'll see that special cable. And it's usually from a special correspondent. And so that dispatch was November 17th. That's a Saturday. One week before was the last murder, the Mary Kelly murder. So that's kind of an important thing too. This is one week later. And so we know for sure, are quite confident that it was the New York World's London correspondent because that's what the Ottawa Free Press says in theirs. So even though it's logical that it was, they say it is. So you can see that that was the New York World's London correspondent that broke that story. Not from New York, but from London. So then what I found out was who he was. The guy's name was E. Tracy Greaves. And so there's a number of articles that talk about E. Tracy, e. Tracy Greaves. And so now I know Joe Chetkudi had commented that uh, James Tooley was involved with that. He, was actually, he actually was involved with the New York world, but he wasn't on the payroll until the next year. So this man was on the payroll. Uh, and then he started at the beginning of 1888, but he became the, the chief correspondent when the Ripper murders were occurring. 
uh, a man named Crawford uh, was uh, left August, and he uh, he was uh, so this was actually at this time he was the only man, only person uh, involved with uh, the the New York World at London at the time. So now let's take a step step back uh, step uh, back and look at the entire article and what it is is it's four Ripper stories. The, e. Tracy Greaves was writing on Jack the Ripper on this case. It wasn't just about anything else. And I kind of sectioned it off. And notice where the Cumbledy story is involved with that. So the lion's share of the article is the first one, which is a Sir, Sir George Arthur article. But notice that in this case, there really isn't any sensationalism with the Cumbledy story. And it's just kind of matter-of-factly uh, information that they wrote. If there was any kind of sensationalism, it would have been the first one right here because that was Sir George Arthur uh, that was involved. And Tracy Greaves that night went to that aristocratic gentleman's club. But if you look at it, it says the end of the week update. So again, a week before was Mary Kelly's murder. And you can see a score of other men have been arrested by the police this week. So it looked like he was kind of collecting the information on Friday or Saturday. So, and then again, that night he went to that, uh, that club. So, now notice how accurate the Cumbledy story really is. If you look at it, the man's name was Tumbledy. So they only got a K wrong. But every one of the, uh, the newspapers had K. Although there were some misspellings, that either came from the cable uh, um, you know, when they transmitted a, a mistake in the transmission, but I don't think so, especially because of the, the November 19th article in the New York World didn't say that. I think it came from his source, E. Tracy Greaves' source, because that person really didn't know what was going on at the time. But Tumbley was known to have letters in his possession. Anytime he would get in trouble, he would show that he was kind of an upper crust kind of person, so treat me a little, with a little more respect when he got arrested uh, in the somewhere. He did cross. Uh, he was uh, in the habit of crossing the ocean twice a year. I found this right here. He arrived in New York Harbor on October 7th, 1887 from Liverpool. He, he had a sister that lived in Liverpool, so he would always go back and forth from Liverpool to New York Harbor. And 1887 would have been a perfect year. That was the Golden Jubilee, and also Buffalo Bill was hanging out in, in London at the time. So where did the New York World Reporter first learn of the four, uh, the, of the four Whitechapel murder investigation stories, especially the Cumbly story? So where did he get this stuff? Where was his source? Well, American journalists generally got their information from, uh, let's say, London stories from two sources, the police and the London papers. This was one person involved he was responsible for all of Europe for the news. And he, I mean, any kind of wars going on, all of that stuff. So for him to hang out and sit for one little story all day would have been a waste of time. So they took advantage of stuff. And for example, right here, this is, this is after Warren had resigned. So Scotland Yard was kind of open to the press again, especially the American press. Here we have... Uh, the journalist, and this man's name is Arthur Brisbane. He's a, he became kind of famous at the time. But he interviewed 
Anderson at Scotland Yard. And so uh, I, I published this on Casebook a little bit ago. So this man, this was three days before the Cumberly story that he had interviewed uh, uh, Dr. Anderson. And then the London Papers. Now, this, uh, this reporter, unknown, but he worked for the, the New York right, Herald's uh, um, London person was right there, uh, Oki Hall. And he said he worked for him. And notice that they would filch from the great dailies. So many of their stories, they just waited for the, the it was right off the press. They would do as, exactly what it's saying. And they would just transmit it right back to the United States, and they had their stories. And it would be that fast. So that was a habit of theirs. So all of, lots of their stories come from the London papers, so, and also from the police. But did the New York World London correspondent, E. Tracy Greaves, author of the company's story, use the police in the London papers himself? Well, we have a couple things. First of all, yes, Greaves sent the following dispatch two weeks before the Cumbly dispatch. And notice that he blames both the police and the London papers for him getting this wrong. Not only him getting it wrong, but all the special correspondents and the Associated Press. So it's a longer story about what happened and the details. But notice it says the, uh, the sensational London Eden papers and the police themselves are responsible. Not him. He's not blaming the story that he just sent the day before. And this was no, November 1st, uh, November 2nd, so it was a November 1st story that happened uh, in here. So he's kind of saying, this is where I got the sources, uh, you know, the, the information from, these two sources. So the London Papers following uh, is from the same source. Uh, let's see. It's from the same source. This is one week before. Notice that this right here, November 10th, so this is the, just after the Kelly murder, Here's what the Echo had, and it talked about this bill announcing a reward for 100 pounds that was close to the murder. E. Tracy's Greaves using that information. So we know that E. Tracy Greaves did use the London papers for Ripper stories. So, but, because that right there, special to the evening world, that was part of the New York world, and there it is, London. So, but in the case of the Cumbly story, it could not have been the papers. It was not. Watch what happens here. First of all, the three stories, the Sir George Arthur story, the, Le the Leon Rothschild story, I can't find them in any British papers. As a matter of fact, it says the affair was kept out of the newspapers. So he didn't get those. The Cumberly story, we can't find in any of the newspapers in, in England. So three of those, probably the fourth one, his source was not the London Papers for this. So what would it have been? Well, how about the police? That was the other source that he would use. Is there any evidence to support that he may have gotten the Tumbley story from the police themselves? By the way, Tumbley, the Indian herb doctor story, is a different source than Cumberley's stores. So hopefully I can get to that one too. But in this case... Look right here, it says, in these articles, I just kind of highlighted, it occurred to two policemen that blah, 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 the police could not hold him, and then the police say, and then down here, it says, by the police. It's kind of, uh, the common theme in all these stories is the police. It's kind of like a thread, it connects it. So, if you read that, I mean, you could still say, well, somebody else told me that it was, the police said this, but clearly the police are involved with these stories. So, is there evidence that the world grieves had a connection at Scotland Yard? 
Well, here's one. This is, uh, uh, again, this is E. Tracy Greaves, and it says, I learned today from a Scotland Yard man working on the case, and it says right here, here's where Warren uh, said, every newspaper man calling at Scotland Yard had to then sign in. So you can see when Anderson gave the interview the, to the New York Herald, or to the New York Sun reporter, that Warren was gone at the time. But in this case, this is showing that Greaves actually had a Scotland Yard man and here's another one. I'm informed by a gentleman and here's, uh, who stands in close relations at Scotland Yard. My informant tells me, and this is, again, here is where we have, look how close, uh, right here is the New York World office next to Trafalgar Square. It's very close to uh, the, you know, Scotland Yard at the time. So you could see that this right here, he had a source in Scotland Yard, and it's kind of interesting. I'd like to know more about this gentleman. So, if who that would refer to, especially when Anderson, three days before, was was allowing an American correspondent an interview. And I heard earlier today that sometimes he said more more than he should have, but. And so now, but did the reporter interview Tumbledy? Could Tumbledy have uh, kind of tainted the story? So if you look at this, here's the Kelly murder. Here's where the Tumbledy story came out. uh, November 17th, Greaves sent out here. And so what happened with Tumbledy, he had his remand hearing on November 7th. That's the first time that he was arrested, but he was arrested not for the murders or on suspicion. That's not when he, this right here was, when it was his, uh, he was arrested for gross indecency. So, and then November 9th, the murders occurred. And then here's his committal hearing, that was November 14th. So he was, the committal hearing is to be committed to Holloway Prison, which he was. So, now, two days later he posted bail, but, so we know that he was in Holloway Prison right there. So, now, there are some arguments, where was he at this time? You know, some of the people are saying that he was in jail, Holloway Prison at that time. But um, one of the things, he was allowed bail during his committal hearing for the same case is his remand hearing. So, uh, one is, uh, Tumley could have easily embarrassed him by saying, anybody saying, I couldn't have been the murderer because I was in jail. And so Scotland Yard must be a little off there or something. But here it is. Uh, there would be a reason. If he was given bail here, so he probably likely was given bail at this time. An interview with Tumbley could not have occurred at the police station, as in before the 7th. Absolutely no press reports of Tumbley being arrested on November 7th. I've gone through hundreds, I don't know, it feels like hundreds of newspaper reports. There's nobody that says Tumbley was arrested on November 7th. But what we do know is they all kind of make a mistake. He said he was arrested on suspicion November 16th sometimes, November 18th they've heard. And so there's been some kind of interesting discussion about that, so I'm going to clarify that too. But nothing on November 7th. Nobody said this. No reporters knew it especially Greaves. He did not know this. You'll see in a second why. Now, in this case, the reporter learned that Cumbly, uh, remember in the article, it said that he was committed. He has been committed. That was November 14th. 
So Greaves, uh, whatever source he received this information from, had to have been post-November 14th because it says he's been committed. And so then right here, this is what Greaves writes in November 27th. This is from E. Tracy Greaves, that the mysterious Dr. Twombly American arrested November 16th, he wrote. Now, the article he's sent out, the dispatch, was November 17th, which is a Saturday. And it was this week information. So the person that gave him the information, is that where the November 16th came from? Because he clearly didn't know it was a November 7th. Could Greaves have been to the Marlboro, uh, Marlboro uh, Police Street Court or the Holloway Prison, which was November 14th or November 15th? So the police court case was kept out of the papers. And this is one of the things that even Trevor talks about in here is we can't find the Tumblety case where it should be because there are always two British reporters in every one of these places, at least two. And I have T.C. Crawford, who used to be the New York World London correspondent, saying in his autobiography, saying that they, they, uh, the British papers went to uh, extensive uh, reporting of these. And we can't find anything on that particular day for uh, Tumblety. So they kept it out. So E. Tracy Greaves could not have read the paper to see that on the 14th or 15th. And then, and the warrant of committal was, again, 14th, was kept out of the record. So uh, let's see. Could it have been happenstance? Could E. Tracy Greaves have gone to looking for Brit, uh, Whitechapel murder stories, would he have gone to a West End police court, sat there all day waiting for somebody to flag that might be a Jack the Ripper person? Well, that's one of the things that would be very difficult to do, and he didn't have to. First of all, uh, uh, here's, this is T.C. Crawford talking about it, that already those... those uh, um, Police courts were covered, so he could have easily read the paper on that. So how about during posting of bail? None, if you look at any of the newspapers prior to December 1st, no, none of them say Tumbley was had posted bail. All of them just said that he was arrested on suspicion and then he had for gross indecency uh, that he was uh, charged with, but none of them said that. Picked up uh, Cumberly exclusive from Scotland Yard after it says a score of men have been arrested uh, this week. So this week would have been November 16th. So here it is. E. Tracy Greaves, when he got the story, basically was after he left, uh, Tumbley left Holloway Prison. So he, he was in front of the magistrate, Hannay, on November 14th and 16th. And it was basically the 17th, 16th or 17th that he got the story from. An interview with Tumbley could not have occurred after posting bail up to November 21st. Tumbley never initiated any contact. If, if you look at his history, any, he always denied anything about uh, you know, his um, homosexuality. So would it have ever been a case of him going to a reporter, finding E. Tracy Greaves and saying, okay, and then kind of, kind of spilling the beans, say, yes, they did arrest me for gross indecency, that was not. That would have been out of character for Tumblety. 
Interesting though, E. Tracy Greaves said this. This is November 21st. He says that coming at a time when people were beginning to think Dr. Twombly, now that name came actually in New York City, but I'll show you that, now in custody. So, but this was right here, London. This was E. Tracy Greaves. He thinks Tumblebee is still in custody on November 21st. So my argument is Greaves never met Tumblebee at all. So he could not have been duped by Tumblebee. So two things that I, uh, uh, what I'm going to argue here. One is that Greaves his source came directly from Scout and Yard, which would give it credibility for the story. Two is, he never met Tumblebee, so Tumblebee could never have duped him to kind of like sensationalize it. So then there are three other sources out of London that confirm Scout and Yard's interest in Tumblebee as a suspect. One is competing papers. Back then, and this is what I was writing articles, they hated each other, especially a couple years later when they had the yellow journalism battle going on. So if there was one newspaper that messed it up, the other newspapers would really pounce upon that. And they actually joined in on it. Another thing is the Associated Press. That Associated Press, they weren't writing for the people. They weren't writing for people to uh, sell papers. They were writing for credibility for newspapers to use their information. So they also, and I'll, if I can get to this one here, talk about uh, Tumblebee being arrested on suspicion. And then the British press actually did. And this is what we're finding more and more about. But what's kind of cool about this one in the evening, uh, evening Post, the world is probably not aware of, here it is. The world broke the story. And so the Evening Post is saying right here that they're not, probably not aware of this fact, meaning they clearly discovered that. So, it looks like Tumbley was definitely a, sus uh, a suspect. Now, was he just a minor suspect? And if you look at this, a minor suspect, Scout and Yard certainly did suspect Tumbley, but only at first. By November, by November 7th, concerns shifted to the gross indecency case. If you read this from E. Tracy Greaves, it sounds like, but has been committed for trial, that's a fact. So, no longer interested in him being a suspect. Maybe that was sensationalism later. Well, here's E. Tracy Greaves again. Very same suspect four days later saying, Twom Dr. Twombly now in custody might really prove to be the Whitechapel fiend. Well, that's not, well, he, if he really did think that he was not a big suspect, well, four days later he certainly did. So something changed or he wrote that to show, like other articles said, that he was arrested to be held uh, because of this. And so that kind of supports that a bit. And then the fact that also conflicting with this are three Scotland Yard officials confirmed Tumbley was being investigated as a Whitechapel murder suspect after the gross indecency arrest and after the, the, the Kelly murder. For example, we talked about this quite a bit online here, but here's Anderson, was contacted by U.S. Chiefs of Police after November 20th. And so in this case, one of the things is uh, the argument's been, especially with, uh, let's say, Roger Palmer and Wolf in the past, about the San Francisco Chronicle right here, who initiated contact? My point is it doesn't matter 
who initiated contact. Because uh, here, I'm even, I'm even going to use the articles. There's a number of articles that kind of conflict with this. I'm going to use the article that favors the side that it was uh, Crowley that contacted Anderson. But at the same time, notice this particular one here. This is, uh, this is the Brooklyn Police, uh, Police Chief Patrick uh, Campbell. And it says right here, Tumbley, uh, the London police are evidently doing their level best to fasten the Whitechapel murders on Dr. Tumbley. Today, Police Superintendent Campbell received a telegram from Assistant um, Police Commissioner Anderson in reference to Tumbledy. And so this right here shows that Anderson initiated contact with him. So even though maybe Crowley initiated contact, that may have spurred on, okay, I want some information from you about Tumbledy, but he definitely contacted him here. One of the things, one of the researchers said, well, that was only, in this particular case, that was only the title, so they made a mistake. So it was just the reporter that said that. The problem is, this is not the Brooklyn Citizen. That when you look at the Brooklyn Citizen, you might get that. This is the Brooklyn Daily Standard. This was within the article. So it wasn't like a title that was added later. So this right here shows that Anderson wanted to talk about Tumblety as with respect to being a ripper suspect. This is, this is post-Kelly murder. This is post-November 20th. So why the interest in Tumblety if they were no longer interested? And it was only the, uh, the, uh, the uh, gross indecency case. So then there's this. One of the things is uh, the focus on handwriting. But Anderson didn't ask for the handwriting. If you look at it closely, he asked for all the details you can. The handwriting was Crowley saying, hey, you want the handwriting? So if you look at both here to uh, Campbell and Crowley, he wanted all information on Tumblety. So one argument is maybe they wanted handwriting uh, because of the four young men that, you know, for the gross indecency case to kind of match him writing a letter to the four young men. But right here, he wasn't asking for handwriting examples. He was just asking for all details on the case. Okay. And then there's this one that was just recently found, not my beat, but uh, David Barrett. And here it is. Walter Andrews came to America, actually in Canada, and going through there, and there was always this, is he here, maybe uh, one for one reason for Francis Tumblety. But uh, that's another argument. But in this case, someone, a reporter asked him about Tumblety, and here's what he wrote. He says, do I know Tumblety? Of course I do, but he's not the Whitechapel murderer. Of course he's going to say that. In this case, all the same, we would like to interview him. Why would you want to interview him if he's not? If you had no interest in him? So one thought is maybe they would like to interview him for the gross indecency case. Well, this was, notice, uh, this was post-November 20th. Tumblety went to court November 20th. The, the scout in the yard was ready for the case November 20th, and it was Tumblety himself that requested the postponement until December 10th. So scout in the yard was already ready for them, for the gross indecency case. In this case, but in this, what I wrote down here is, doesn't matter what the interview said, it's still not extraditable if it's a gross indecency case. But if there was something about the Jack the Ripper case, then if that, uh, and this come, uh, then that would have been extraditable. 
So then there's this one. I went to, and I said this here, here. With the Tumblebee's implication coming from Scout and Yard, not from himself, Anderson contacting the U.S. Chiefs of Police and Andrew is wanting an interview, it's time to take a second look at Little Child because Little Child is the first one that we, we found here. And here it is in connection with the Whitechapel murders, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one. So amongst the suspects, here it is when Sims, who was a famous journalist at the time, years later, on the Ripper suspect, wanted to talk to the man that was in charge of Special Branch. He would not have asked him if he didn't think that Little Child was not in the know. So he's asking him about the Ripper murders. So here's Little Child pulling out Dr. Francis Tumbley. He knew his name. He knew so much detail. Now, it is true that he kind of messed up at the end, but keep in mind who his boss was later, McNaughton the man who was really into Druid. So there was a Druid mix-up, but it almost uh, would seem logical. But in this case, he got lots of this information correct. And so even the balloon, everything about this, the first part. So just to say that he's amongst the suspects, this was after, so I said right here, at, you recall that Tumbley, as a ripper suspect, and this was after the gross indecency events. So then there's this. Uh, this is, I was going to have this in the Whitechapel Society, but I switched. So there's an article coming out, supposed to be this week in the Whitechapel Society Journal, on more on World War or Civil War stuff. But in this case, what you're looking at here is, if you look at the newspaper reports, it was not until December 2nd that they realized Tumbley escaped and jumped ship. And so, well, here's December 1st. He got on the Le Havre in France. So he sneaked out of the country. So between November 20th, that's when uh, his court case was supposed to be, he got it postponed. And then November 24th, he was on the ship. That ship takes off at noon. So by the 23rd, he was in Boulogne. That's how you get there when you sneak through. And then you're going to take a little train ride from Boulogne maybe to uh, the Le Havre. And so in this case, for a full week, while he was... Haze gray and underway, nobody knew about it. So the press had no idea Tumbley sneaked out until a week after. And interestingly, it was E. Tracy Greaves that reported this, the same man. So the same man that had a Scotland Yard source. Also, here it is, this is uh, Chief Inspector Thomas Burns head of the detective division in New York City, and noticed that he, he knew that Tumbley was coming a week ago, a week prior. And if I get the time, I'm not sure if I had the time, but there, uh, there's a report showing that he and Scotland Yard, they used to warn each other of suspects coming each way. But Chief Inspector Burns, head of the New York City's detective division, knew of Tumbley's arrival a week ago, and basically he's pointed to Scotland Yard again. So... Now, Tumblety officially jumped bail when he was uh, no-show on December 10th. So, December 10th, they issued a fresh warrant for his arrest for the gross indecency case. This is December 10th. So, if Scotland Yard's concern with Tumblety was only for the gross indecency case, legally postponed to, from the November 20th to December 10th, why did they know he was in, um, in France over two weeks earlier? I mean, if it was just the case, it's a legal thing, it's postponed. 
why did they know he was in France? And we know he was in, they knew he was in France for two reasons. One, little child said so. And two, the paper said so right here. This says Le Havre, little child says Boulogne. And then there's this. And I'm going to add more stuff. Some of the stuff you already know, but here says, and then there, and uh, it, if we look at the December 4th, it says, there's this man, Tumblety, he sneaked back December 2nd, and he was in New York City. And outside his window, not this guy, this is different one, I'm just showing an image of a detective. But this case, this man, the reporter for the New York World, was not Greaves, Greaves is still in New York, I mean in London. He could not be mistaken for his mission. There was an elaborate attempt at concealment. So, a typical English detective, he wanted to know about this feller Tumbley. What, and it was a uh, one, it was, in this case, you notice it was one bartender this, this reporter talked to, Whitechapel Murders, how he came over to get the chap to death, how he came over. So, here it is. There are a couple arguments against this. Maybe the English detective meant a private detective, would be one thing. Uh, one, another thing is, uh, we should have record at home office of them paying for this, and we don't. And they didn't have a lot of money anyway, so how could this be a scouting yard detective in the case of Francis Tumblety? Well, also, maybe the bartender was drunk too, who knows? But here's a separate newspaper, a different reporter that says that, that he just, he, this reporter discovered an English detective on the track of the suspect. This is multiple bartenders. It appeared that he did not know much about New York because he wasn't there. He followed him. He was, and another argument was maybe there was one of these people, detectives, that they would have in New York. They kind of uh, had him do something about Francis Tumbley, but this guy even shows that he didn't know much about New York. And this particular article even says, not a scout and yard detective, it says, I mean, a, an, a, an English detective, this says a scout and yard man. So scout and yard men that recently followed him across. So this kind of, this confirms that it was scout and yard and he was followed across, but maybe they got that wrong. So, but, we look at this right here, would home office have a record of scouting yard spending money? Well, check out this New York Tribune. This was a, a reporter a, uh, followed a man that was in special branch at the time or one year later. So notice in this case that right here, Assistant Commissioner Police Anderson right here, and it says, going to America, spending the, the Secret Service monies as much as uh, of it as of course, expended without vouchers or accounts. So they really didn't have to report this if it was special branch. So keep in mind, it was Little Child that knew, Tum who was the head of special branch, that knew Tumbley was in France. So paid without vouchers. So right here shows Anderson, the same man that, you know, for the best for the country, maybe have you know, written, been the author of certain letters during the Parnell case, he, he could have seen this was still part of his, um, you know, his responsibility. So this is where, especially if they're already embarrassed that their prime suspect or their main suspect just sneaked out of the country or a suspect slipped through their hands, but they really didn't talk about Tumbley much anyway before that. 
So notice this. this is, I think this is kind of intriguing here. It says, this particular author assumed that the secret dispatch, this is a secret dispatch that was sent at the same time Anderson was sending dispatches to the U.S. Chiefs of Police. All that is known about this dispatch is that it certainly came from Scouting Yard to an English detective in New York. That's right there showing that there was an English detective in New York at the time. Wouldn't, and this person automatically assumed it was LeCaron, what they were talking about. Well, remember, he, he departed on December 8th. That was me adding that. So he doesn't know if it was LeCaron, or right then there was a lot of issue that they were. Here's Anderson himself sending um, dispatches to U.S. Chiefs of Police. Could one of them been a private letter or a private dispatch to the, uh, one of their uh, New York detect or detectives in New York? So how interesting that could have been about Tumbley. So Tumbley was in Boulogne no later than November 23rd. So here we have the, the track. Uh, so you go to, to Folkestone, then there's this cross the channel. Now remember, he usually left England through Liverpool on this side. But he went here because he was sneaking out of the country. And November 20th is when they found some, uh, uh, even in Tumblety's uh, letter, or t one of uh, autobiograph autobiograph autobiographical pamphlets that, he, uh, that shows that he actually had money wired November 20th. 320 pounds or something like this. Enough to sneak out of the country. What's that? It's a small fortune in those days. Yeah, and he had that wired, and there are two different sources for that. We can try to get to that if we have it. But in this case, so, so here's a little child say he was in Boulogne, and then here is the paper. E. Tracy Greaves said that the last, he was last seen in Havre, first seen in Boulogne, that was uh, Tumbledy, or a little child, and then last seen here. So again, it was noon on the 24th that it, that ship left. So. It would have been ample time for some of these ships. There was the SS Umbria had a record for going from Liverpool to New York or back, one of those, at the time. That ship left on the 24th and made it on the same day to New York Harbor as Tumbledee's. So I tried to look for the passenger list on there. So I'd love to see if there was a, a, some kind of detective on there. So, according to the head of Scotland Yard branch, a little child, Tumbley was first seen in Boulogne, who saw him, and then again in La Havre. So if that's the case, little child, somebody in little child's department was involved, Scotland Yard being in, in France, it had to have been special branch. So the person at the time there was Sir William Melville, or Inspector William Melville at the time. So it had to have been him. So, for the last few years, there's been discussion on this, and especially Jonathan Menzies even contacted, uh, where his son went to New Zealand and, and, and was there and got interviewed. So, in uh, the biographer of William Melville, it talks about their family saying it was common knowledge that Melville got involved with the Whitechapel murder case. Well, he was in France till December. So basically, the murder case was almost done. Remember, uh, Aberline left, I think it was February of 89. So they were kind of minimal, uh, reducing the number of people on the case. 
And here is Melville involved with the Riffer case in France. Well, if it was Francis Tumbley, it could have been. And that's what the, the spy master, he read um, Stuart Evans's book, said there was a possibility that, uh, that could have been that. So what they did is they looked for that, and Jonathan Menges looked for it, and they were looking for pretty much 1937. They couldn't find it. And that, but they found an itinerary of the entire radio talk shows. There was no place to fit any discussion of Melville's son being interviewed. Who said this? Well, Roger Palmer found it. Here it is. Nine different, was it 10-minute discussions? Seven out of nine could easily, have, they could have talked about Jack the Ripper. So he found this. Does it mean that he talked about Tumblety? Well, it's getting closer. I mean, you know, the idea that um, Melville didn't discuss Jack the Ripper in the, or Melville's son didn't discuss what his father did in the 1930s, um, that now we, we can see that he certainly did. So then there was actually a fourth official commenting upon Tumbley. And this guy, uh, first of all, right here, no one knew the initial date. Remember I said this before. Nobody knew that November 7th is when Tumbley was arrested for the gross indecency case and then went in front of Hannay that day or the next day. So <clears throat> right here, the, this guy is Canadian Minister uh, of Marine, Deputy Minister William Smith. Here's what he wrote, a private letter to a friend in Canada. Didn't go anywhere in England. He said, he's talking about this guy. Remember this guy, Tumbley, a long time ago when we were in St. John, we knew him. And he says right here, he is the man who was arrested in, in London three weeks ago. This is December 1st. Uh, one of the arguments is all this guy did was read uh, newspapers. Every newspaper said that he was arrested on the 14th, 16th, or 18th, or stuff like this. Where did three weeks ago come from? My, that's what my argument is, is maybe, now, if you look at the whole story, you have a lot of, Jack, uh, a lot of, any kind, of, when Anderson was contacting the U.S. Chiefs of Police, he knew full well Tumbley was in Canada quite often and got in trouble in Canada, so he would have contacted Canada, but that would not have made the papers as much because Scotland Yard had a, a, a stronger connection with Canadian officials. Well, one of the arguments is right here. He had been living in Birmingham and used to come up to London on Saturday nights, and then he was arrested at Euston Station. So where is that? One of the arguments about that, you know, in Ottawa, there clearly was an article that had some man, an American medical person, was arrested in Houston Station. It didn't say Tumbledy at all. So some of the researchers said, well, if you look at the British papers, it was clearly a different issue. And so they even, uh, the British papers kind of blew off the story. Well, we've already heard that the British, you know, Scout and Yard didn't tell the British papers everything, we kind of minimalized things on purpose. So in this case, so the argument is that it was Smith that connected um, Tumblebee. Well, look what I found. The Daily Colonist, on the arrival of Birmingham train station this morning, Dr. Tumblebee was arrested on suspicion. Isn't that cool? So, 
This is Joe Chakuni. He, he really loves this stuff because he wrote a paper on this, so this will be coming out sooner or later. Now, this is the Daily Colonists. If you look at how uh, the papers work and how the cables work, information was sent to the Daily Colonists. Their information does not go back to Ottawa. So how did Smith know about this? So clearly Smith wasn't the one that connected the two stories. It still could have been connected, but it wasn't Smith. My argument here is Smith got complete, some different information. He clearly read papers and some of the stories that Smith said. But I'm saying that he may, may very well have had uh, a source. He was a guy in charge of private cable dispatches from Scotland Yard to Canada or to Ottawa. That was his department. So the claim, Tumbley does not match eyewitness descriptions. Well, here's one where he does. So on Saturday, and then here's a tall, well-dressed man, blood splashes, coming from Mitre Square. So this right here, Daily News, November 12th, it matches that right there. So now, uh, again, remember, nobody saw the murders. We Some people saw them close. So there's still kind of arguments, uh, you know, with uh, any of the suspects and the, the eyewitnesses, but no, there were no actual eyewitnesses to the murders themselves. Well, here's another case like this where it kind of matches Tumblety. Was Francis Tumblety a suspect merely because of the 19th century misconception that psychopathic sexuality subjects, homosexuals, are sadistic, since Jack the Ripper was sadistic, and this is the argument about Little Child saying, in, in my mind, he was the likely suspect, because Little Child had he, was, he could very well have said that homosexuals are kind of weird anyway, and they are prone to violence. Could, you know, was that why Scotland Yard considered him a suspect? Here it is. Although a psycho, uh, psychopathy is sexuality subject, he was not known as a sadist, which mur the murderer quite unquestionably was. The little child thought, thought that Jack the Ripper was a sadistic, even though he still considered Tumblebee a likely suspect, though. The most often reported reason why Scott and Yard suspected Tumbley of being Jack the Ripper was actually his unusual hatred of women. It wasn't homosexuality at the time. If you look at articles, it says his inveterate hatred of women, and, he, and I'll show you what. Uh, but there were some good articles that came out for, uh, for good reason, like Wolf Vanderland talks about this. Was the true hatred of women misogyny, true hatred of women, or was it a euphemism for homosexuality? And what happened was Wolf Vanderland showed that the term woman hater was a euphemism for homosexuality at the time. What I found out, both were. Right here's a case where here's a homosexual man. He said, you know, says, it talks about, on the other hand, I am not a woman hater. So the term woman hater back then was also used as misogyny. So how about the case of Francis Tumbley when we hear that term? Was it, was it used for that? Here's what Little Child said. He did not say woman hater. He said Tumbley, but his feelings towards women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme. A fact on record. If that meant gay, is Little Child saying, well, Tumbley was really, really gay? That doesn't make sense to me. So to me, he's saying, he's using this particular euphemism as in an actual hatred of women. So little child 
shows amongst the suspects, he didn't put Tumblebee on the suspect list. He was suspected because of hatred of women. Little child, let's say, uh, he's gay too, so he's a likely suspect. Okay. It's fine with me too. May not be, but that's okay. In The Prince of Quacks, Tim Riordan, his book talks about a guy named Charles Dunham is the source for the woman hater. None of the early reports, November 1888, this is his book, uh, mention anything about Tumbley's hatred of women until Dunham, on December, 20, uh, December 1st, reports that. Now, that's, this guy was very damning to Tumbley because he claimed to, this guy claimed to have seen Tumbley's uterus collection during the Civil War. So that would be very damning because uh, Jack the Ripper was found with, uh, you know, collected a couple uteruses. So here's three articles that predate Dunham's. November 19th, William Pickerton said he was known as a thorough woman hater. Right here, this one here, Crowley himself said uh, November 20th, 23rd in New York, his behavior was that of a man who had no liking for women. And then this one here, November 26th, New York World. So did you ever, uh, he's asking Mr. Carr, did you ever hear he had an inversion to women, or an aversion to women, a hatred to women? That was before uh, Dunham's interview. And then there's this that uh, uh, Howard Brown discovered. In this case, it says, a, a collection of Tumbley's uh, unusual misogyny behaviors in London during the murders. So this was during the murders, this man rode uh, on one of those, uh, where is it? It was, uh, you know, the horse-drawn carriage. And on here it says, one pleasant day in October. But what surprised me was his actions when he found that I was in company with ladies. This is during the Ripper murders. What he was doing when ladies were, when he came in, saw that there were ladies there, his uneasiness at the time. So, one of the things that Neil Story, he discovered these letters from Sir Henry Hall Kane, letters from Tumbley, but one of the things that he talks about, and this is, I added more to this, is, and here it says, the Inner Ocean says, according to the detectives, uh, they talked about Tumbley, and it says, this interview, this is during when he was a teenager. During, when he was a teenager, he says that uh, this man knew Tumbley, young Frank Tumbley, a few years after reaching manhood, he evinced a great dislike for women and constantly spoke of the gentler sex as a curse to the land, blaming women. He had a hatred even when his, in his teenage years. So in this case, a uh, couple other ones here. Young lions never failed to warn his, uh, cor his correspondent against lewd women. All the troubles in the world were caused by women, right here. And he says all women were imposters. So here is Henry Hall Keynes, and he talks about, now this was about prostitutes, Chinese prostitutes, but they were females. He says, and this is Tumbley himself writing this, in morals and obscenity, they are far below those of our most degraded prostitutes. So, and then these women uh, used to decoy use at a most tender age. Here's the man. One of the reasons why he hated women is because what they're doing is they're decoying, they are imposters, they are decoying young, impressionable teenage boys away from their intended lovers, older men. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Since, so, Scotland Yard knew of Tumbley's misogyny, reputation. Again, here's, this right here was, came out of a British paper reported by cable from Europe 
and a great dislike for women, a hatred of women right here. And again, it was Little Child himself that he said this was a fact on record. So if Little Child says it's a fact on record, Little Child was the one that said they had this big fat dossier of, of Tumblebee. Probably had a lot of stuff because Tumblebee was Irish, uh, part of New York, a lot of connections with the, the Fanians, a lot of stuff. And he was arrested ever since the, he, he first came to Europe, to London, 19, 1869. Ever since, he was arrested, like always, while he was arrested here, same, for the same reason. So they had a record of him doing this. So, but notice this one right here. This is 1875. This is kind of cool. So 13 years before Dunham's interview, notice what, this was a Liverpool paper. Nobody knew Tumblebee's reputation. And it says... What I liked was uh, talking about uh, right here. She, she declined, whereupon Tumbley ordered her to get out, legs and all, or else he would kick her out. Then the reporter said, other y women, young and unmarried, two that would threaten the, the, the men that, young men that he liked, have fled in alarm from his premises and say his language and conduct suggests danger. So that doesn't mean that he was the killer. But it does show, way back then, there was a threat. The reporter thought enough to write that in there. So, but homosexual serial killers tend to victimize the same sex. Jeffrey Downey, young boys. Tumblebee's sexual desires were for young men. If Jack the Ripper was a sadosexual serial killer, he wasn't Jack the Ripper. I'm, if, 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 the, if they were sex crimes, he wasn't Jack the Ripper. Per forensic scientist and criminal profile, Dr. Brent Turvey, PhD, the offender motive, misogyny. He looked at the Ripper murders, and what he saw, he might not be right, but what he saw, based on this, is anger retaliatory. There wasn't uh, so much attack on the vagina, more on what makes women women, like the uterus. Interestingly, forensic pathologist uh, William Eckert and... Turby, both interpret Jack the Ripper's behavior as anger, anger retaliatory and non-sadistic. So here's the top little child thinking that Jack the Ripper was clearly sadistic, and now modern experts say it's not sadistic. Both explain the mutilations uh, of the Whitechapel victims' bodies show a lack of sexual assault. Now that's not my words, that was Turby's words. And clearly exhibit anger retaliatory behavior and reassurance-oriented behaviors. Sadosexual or less serial killers exhibiting compulsive masturbation wouldn't fit the profile of anger retaliatory. So I know uh, one person said that 80-some percent of all serial killers are compulsive masturbators, but that's, if Tumbley was Jack the Ripper, he wasn't a sadosexual serial killer, so it would not have been him. So Tumbley not being that, we don't know, but it wouldn't matter in this case. Many in Scotland Yard were also convinced that Jack the Ripper was sadistic, and this is what I've talked about. But how ironic, even though Chief Inspector Littlechild considered Tumbley a likely one, he believed the guy was sadistic. Now, the modern experts would support Tumbley more then. Late 19th century medical experts, they called themselves, they were alienists, what, a psychoanalyst or psychologist at the time? I had little understanding of serial motives and most classified the killer as monomaniac or sexual per perverts. Not all of them, because I did find a couple that didn't go uh, argued this, but especially this guy here, you see him in a lot of the papers. Hammond, 
And, and so, in terms of monomaniac reveals and it, uh, their inexperience in dealing with the serial offenders, and it's suggesting that anyone capable of this kind of bloodthirsty brutal, uh, brutality must be insane. So, and so that's why my suggestion, even though Swanson and Anderson might be correct, uh, let's say Kosminski was the killer, but in this case, they just might be wrong because they don't have the modern day background and understanding of this. So here's Dr. Scott Bond talking about psychopaths and sociopaths. So kind of a, in short, psychopath would be you're born that way, but then you had some abuse as a kid. Sociopaths is you got abuse as a kid. And, it, and so you're both, you have lack of empathy and remorse, but neither are considered insane. So it's a personality disorder, is what they consider. So you can't use that in court, saying that, uh, of insanity. But it says, while psychopaths are generally intelligent, cunning, emotionless, and manipulative, holding good jobs, sociopaths aren't. So those who, uh, so yeah, let me go right here so we can get faster. I've got more. I've got another hour, but I wonder. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm telling you, man, after my own heart. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've got a lot of stuff on. Uh, well. More. Here's, this is uh, aggressive narcissists. And the cool thing about this, the list, look at this, lack of remorse, trigger narcissistic rage, love to travel, that is so tumbledy. <laughs> and then here, tumbledy's misogyny uh, came out, uh, let's see, due to anger, anger triggered females. Uh, but I want to kind of get to, uh, let's see, this right here. But Tumbley had no history of it. And this is what Howard Brown made a comment. We have no history of Tumbley doing anything. Well, I'm going to talk about snapping. Especially if you had syphilis. I'm just saying. <laughs> I didn't. If you insist. Okay. So, w there were triggers in 1888 with Tumbley that could have triggered narcissistic rage. First unwanted thing that happened here, January 1888, very same year. Look what he said to a reporter in, in Toronto that he was in constant fear of sudden death and dread of sudden death because he had kidney and heart disease. Here's a guy that had a, a connection with the uterus, kidney and heart disease. He's the only of the suspects that can be connected to those three things that were taken. If the heart was taken, I know the... Uh, Of course, this could be wrong, but I'm saying, whoa, more, I mean, there's more coincidences. And then there's this, this thing, I wish, uh, uh, what was her name? I wish she was here because that picture yeah. showed this. This is the anatom uh, anatomical Venus. Mm. And look at how much this looks like Mary Kelly. Mm. So, the anatomical Venus finds its origins in the reclining Venus that's been around for 2,000 years in paintings. You know, the Venus in the half shell or the shell kind of thing. This right here, the Venus was the goddess of physical heterosexual love, lust. Something Timothy hated because women were the, the ruination of the world because of that right there. He would have hated that, that goddess right there. But he certainly would have loved that goddess getting ripped apart like that. So, Timothy would have loved the anatomical Venus. Guess what happened in January of 1888? Four museums in New York, within a mile of Tumbley's residence, they ripped out the stuff, and here's one right here. They ripped apart the anatomical Venuses that were next to Tumbley's house. 
And then we talked about the Yorkshire River. That's why I, was, I, wanted, I wish it was here. But same idea. So we have future kind of connections with serial, uh, serial killers having a connection with these kind of things. So I want to talk to her about the anatomical Venus. So the third unwanted thing would just be Mary Kelly. Here it is. You are arrested for gross indecency on November 7th. Meaning, and they had the goods on the guy. And I think every count would be two years. It could have been up to eight years that he could have been in jail. So would that have gotten him angry, a narcissist, uh, an aggressive narcissist? Next thing you know, if he left, got released on November 8th, look who got murdered. But look who got murdered, not outside. Look who got murdered when it was during the, uh, the, the mayor's parade. And so he did everything not to get caught. And and he spent time. Was that? During the night house, the oh, parade was where the body was found. Okay, and okay, and then uh, in this case, with uh, November 9th, he had hours with this woman, could actualize it. You could almost say that the other ones. I mean, it looks so much like an anatomical Venus. The other murders, if he would have had the time, maybe they are anatomical Venuses that couldn't been completely actualized because he had to leave. But Mary Kelly, his full agenda was complete. So, that's what, okay, and he, he himself kind of makes, says that he loses all control himself. But I want, if you have time, you have time? We don't have time. You don't have time? No, we're, we're closing down the place. Oh, bummer. <laughs> because I'm, uh, because uh, what this right here, uh, maybe I can do it tomorrow. But what I'm going to talk about is, okay, how about two seconds? In this case, here's, uh, I don't know. But what happens is, in, uh, during 1861, I'll show convincing evidence that Tumblebee was in, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. The reason why he would have been on H Street, one is because General McClellan was right there. He was following McClellan. There's a reason why he'd been on H Street. And just a month or two before, he was there showing McClellan's officers these Jewish collections of the Manhattan collection. In New York City, the reporters were complaining about his anatomical pictures outside his office. And then, after his two years soldier, he goes to Buffalo and he's reported to have more lectures. So he's got lectures like he did in Washington D.C. He's got anatomical specimens, and there's more to it. So, I, so too bad I have more time. But um, we could give you some time tomorrow, Mike. To, no, got more. Sorry. <laughs> wow, I love talking. Thank you very much for listening. To me. That's, that was one of the finest presentations I've ever heard. Of. I like that guy right there. <laughs> is coming back to wrap up his talk on Francis Tumblety for our last presentation of the day. Mike. So this last part, uh, there's actually more, but I would just stick with this one here. The what are the uh, the people? Francis Tumbley being arrested, and then, although no one knew it yet, he'd already posted bail and jumped ship, or he absconded. And December 1st, there was an interview in the New York World. This New York 
lawyer had a very damning uh, interview on Tumblety, and what he said was this Dr. Dunham, or I mean this Charles Dunham, during the Civil War, 1861, claimed to have seen Francis Tumblety's uterus collection. Quite damning because here's Jack the Ripper and has taken the uterus out of two of the suspects. And so it was quite damning. And then so I think um, Stuart Evans had discovered this article. And then since then, uh, other really good researchers discovered that this man, Charles Dunham, during the Civil War, was a reptile journalist. He was a really good liar. And doing the research, uh, Carmen Cumming is the foremost expert, and this is the book right here that, uh, that there's so much in the Civil War about spies that we still don't know. And, and one of the things that they talked about, Carmen Cumming talks about as well, is that spies were not for like the North or the South, they were for individuals. So uh, uh, let's say the uh, one particular uh, official may have his own spies or something. And so Carmen Cumming was convinced that Dunham was a uh, spy for someone in Washington. And what happened is, is that Carmen Cumming, he also believed that this there's a strange 1888 interview about Dr. Tumblety and that, uh, again, why, what, why did he give this interview? And so one of the things that modern researchers were, were claiming, especially the Timmy Riordan, I'll show that in a second, but uh, in this case, Cumming said that this was a strange interview. And it says, here's, so I want to look at this. And... Cumming assumed that Dunham was up to his Civil War reptile journalism tricks, thus he lied. It's either for uh, maybe vindication against Tumblety or for making money. And that's where most of us had kind of ended up after some of the people had researched this. So uh, Tim Riordan in, in, in this case says, after uh, said, suggested both. After he leads the reader to believe a long-held vindictiveness agenda that uh, from Civil War that Dunham had was vile, then he curiously opts for the money-making agenda. And that's what, if you read, this is right out of Tim Riordan's book here. So why would Dunham in 1888 go to the lengths that he did to make Tumblely appear so guilty? Several reasons suggest themselves. Dunham was known to be vindictive and hold grudges for a long time. So, Tim put that there for the reader to kind of uh, think about. And then probably the most pertinent reason was that Dunham saw a way to make money off these sensational, sensational stories. This may not be the only tumbly story he penned in 1888. Another one was about this Colonel James Southern, this, uh, the Chicago lawyer that was interviewed. So I want to kind of talk about that guy. So here is this uh, New York World, November 26th. Uh, Dunham's interview was December 1st. So this is four days before. So Francis Tumbley is now a suspect. So the New York World, especially the New York World, is, is finding people that knew Tumbley and, and want to know a little bit more about this guy. So here it is. I have known Dr. Twombly by sight for 30 years, said William H. Carr. And nobody disagrees with this because this was about the Fifth Avenue Hotel. 
But then he was interviewing others around the Fifth Avenue Hotel, especially the Hoffman House. Here's Colonel James L. Sothern of Chicago, well-known group, uh, well-known lawyer, was talking to a group of friends. And so, basically, he kind of slammed on him. And then uh, the reporter went to James Pryor. So we know that both James Pryor was the detective at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, and, and Carr was correct too. From Simon found these people as well. So, but Colonel James Southern, it says, if Riord is correct, then Dunham planned the tumbly money-making scheme before December 1st. So it was, it was a scheme to, to for kind of like uh, premeditated, six days before his own December 1 interview, in which he claimed to have seen Tumbledee's uterus collection. Riordan adding the Southern story was clearly an obvious attempt to convince the reader that Dunham's devious uh, premeditated intentions. So, guess who I found in the Hoffman House that very month? There was an actual Southern in the Hoffman House Shakespearean actor and notorious practical, practical jokester. I'm telling you, they talk about his practical jokes all the time. And this guy, Edward H. Southern, was playing at the Lyceum Theater at a play called Sweet Lavender in November 1888. So if you look at these articles about him, he hung out at the Hoffman House Cafe with his buddy, actor buddies. So in this case, uh, talking about this, he and so other actors would be there. So you can see this reporter going to the Hoffman House, and there, there is, well, one thing, Tumbley was always into watching the actors. So I'm convinced that this guy knew Tumbley, especially because he was in Cincinnati around the same time Tumbley was in Cincinnati as well. So, but he's a practical jokester, and I'm sure that he just kind of scammed the reporter a little bit. Especially with the name Sother, that's such a unique name. So the reporter may have been duped by the actor and practical jokes are Southern, but this is far, a far cry from a premeditated scheme by Dunham. So I want to talk about, I want to follow the reporter. If you look at this New York City reporter, so the world had someone in, you know, in every city and this, this New York World Reporter was based in New York City. And so if you look at this, first of all, if you follow this, in the November 19th uh, articles, it talks about Tumbledy. So November 18th was the first time we heard about Tumbledy. Then the next day we hear about Tumbledy. Either Twombledy or Tumbledy, does, doesn't matter. But they knew so much about him. And one of the things that they reported was in the Fifth Avenue Hotel, uh, this little issue right there that Tumbledy had. And so then in the New York Sun talked about him promenading from Broadway all the time. So here comes the reporter. So that's November 19th. November 25th is when this article, he, was, he, was go, he went to these places and interviewed these people. I would have done it. So this is an investigative reporter going that direction. So it was the reporter going to the Fifth Avenue Hotel, the Hoffman House, getting stories about Tumbledee. So how about the December 1? What happened? Because here's Dunham in New Jersey. How did this New York City lawyer go across the river to New Jersey? So, in this case, it starts with a man named William Burr. When you look at the, the story, what it talks about is the same reporter after the 25th. The next thing, he goes further down Broadway where the lawyers are. 
In this city, he, uh, this is, he's talking about Tumbledee. Uh, this is a different article the next day, I think it was. Oh, which one? It's, um, oh, actually, December 1st. In this city, he had a little experience with the law, and this enabled the lawyers to worm out something. So here is the New York, this New York World Reporter now trying to find stories of lawyers because Tumbley used to get in trouble. So he talks to a guy named William Burr. So William Burr, his office was 335 Broadway, or I'm sorry, 320. In 1881, director, I couldn't find the 1888 one, but in 1881, here's a lawyer, Dunham, which is pretty much neighbors. Dunham was now a real estate lawyer. This is what uh, uh, Carmen Cumming, Cumming said. Everyone said he was a real estate lawyer. Here's an example of that right there. And he was always downtown in uh, working with the, the, the courts, the New York, the courts there, the Supreme Court. So was William Burr. New York City was the size of Buffalo, New York at this time. My buddy, I have a buddy that's a, new, a lawyer downtown, so I go there once a year to kind of have lunch with him. He knows every one of those other guys, lawyers. So to me, it's clear that what happened was is that the New York City or New York World Reporter was going, trying to find company stories, found Burr, asked Burr, Burr knew about the story, and could, set, could have easily said, well, you got to talk to my friend, uh, Charles Dunham. This guy's really got a story about it. Because notice it's December 1st. The Tumbley was arrested 10 days prior about, so there was a lot of discussion in the papers. So that would be explain how this New York City reporter got to New Jersey and, and, and talked to Dunham. So in 1888, New York City was the size of the, uh, Buffalo, that's what I'm talking about. So basically, this real estate lawyer knew Dunham, real estate lawyer. And that's kind of what it looks like. To me, it's not that Dunham was looking to make money, finding the New York City, our New York World Reporter, it was the reverse. The reporter was looking for stories, got to Dunham. So here's Dunham, he could have still lied, by the way, but it was not premeditated by Dunham to, for a vindictive reason or a, a, a premeditated uh, agenda to make money. The guy came to him. Yes, absolutely true that Dunham was a reptile journalist. But remember, reptile journalism is he is the author. The reason why, right here, when uh, the, uh, the Carmen Cummings, he called it a strange 1888 column. Well, the strangeness goes away when you realize it wasn't Dunham trying to do a reptile journalism thing. It was just a reporter coming to him, coming to him so there goes the strangeness. So, but again, he still could be lying about him because he had the capacity to lie, but in this case. But, so let's look at the details on, on his story. One of the things when you read the story, some of the researchers have noticed that there's these mistakes in there. Well, let's go back to see if they're really mistakes. First of all, oh, this is what Cameron Cummings says. He was working for somebody in Washington. So Dunham had, in, during the Civil War, he had a reason to lie. He had to be better be good at it because if he's, I mean, he, he was in the South. He was in, you know, in front of these people. If he wasn't a good liar, he would be dead because he's a spy. So, and, which I'm gonna call, come, talk, come to later, Dunham, who said that he saw after the uh, Battle of Bull Run, which was what, July 21st of 1861, the first battle, a couple days later he saw Tumbley there. 
So then he talks about Tumbley giving this illustrated lecture. Well, it wasn't a couple days after that, uh, the Battle of Bull Run that he gave the lecture. It could have been any time in 1861, if you read that. So in this case, illustrating a lecture about, this is what, let's see if I can get to this. If you look at this, here's some of the uh, support. Talk about this. These guys talk about, in the 1800s, that membership in the surgical medical profession was a common uh, culture of collectorship. So surgeons would collect anatomical specimens. And they would use them to illustrate their lectures. They had their museums. And so it advertised a medical vocation, act as, as, as a diploma. So here's Francis Tumblety. He would write MD after his name. So he didn't just profess to be an Indian herb doctor. He professed to be a, uh, that, someone that went to medical school. But he didn't. So nowhere did he, did, did he do that. So here it is. If I can do this. If you look at what Dunham says, Dunham here says a well-known lawyer, and he talks about uh, one day my lieutenant colonel and myself was accepted, accepted the doctor's invitation to a late dinner symposium. So it was a late dinner symposium illustrating his lecture and so, and then the, the other people that were there were fellow officers. So one of the arguments was that Dunham was not a colonel because he called himself a colonel. Well, officially he might not have been, but he certainly was there in the capacity of a colonel at that time. It was, might be a scam or whatever, but at that time, uh, so Dunham wasn't completely wrong about that. He might have kind of inflated that he was really a colonel, but he was there. And so what he would say, he said that in this case, he didn't just see his, uh, uh, uterus, his uterus collection, he saw an anatomical museum. And it was encased in these uh, portable boxes. Uh, let's see, uh, right here. These, uh, let's see, one side of this room was entirely occupied by these cases. So they were all in cases, so transportable cases, outwardly resembling wardrobes when the doors were opened quite a museum was revealed, filled with all sorts of anatomical specimens. And the big thing was, is that, uh, what Dunham said is, that, of course, the man favored his uterus collection, you know, and so that was the issue. So notice right here, this was, he had two years soldier, 61 to 63. He was in, uh, um, at this time, that was when he was in Washington, he had this lecture. Well, notice, this is just after, 1863, he first went to Philly after he was done, got in trouble, so then he went to Buffalo. So we all go to Buffalo, right? Get in trouble? So that's where he hung out with John Wilkes Booth. So that was a big thing. But what people don't see is, look what he was doing. He was giving lectures. He was giving medical lectures still. I mean, that was the, one of the arguments is, why would Tumbley give a lecture? Well, there's more evidence. This guy had no idea what was going on with Dunham. I mean, this was a long time ago. So, also in the same year, just before Tumbley left for the Capitol, he was exhibiting images of anatomical specimens. This was in the Vanity Fair. This is just months before he went to Washington, D.C. And notice in the Vanity Fair, says this report, they were com complaining it was, kind of, it was very difficult to read this. Howard Brown found this, but I don't think he knows it because you just couldn't read this thing. It was really hard, and I had to kind of, you know, get it and put it on uh, like different filters. You know, I was 
an expert, you know, alternate light and all kind of business. But what it says here is this, and uh, the passers-by were d uh, daily outraged by and, and the, the exhi exhibition of certain anatomical pictures which took, which looked as if they might once have formed part of the collection of a lunatic confined in a leper uh, hospital. So then they said, this man is Tumblety. So here is certain anatomical pictures. Within months before, now he has got this illustrated lecture going on. So some of the arguments that uh, why would Tumblety want to speak to him, remember what's going on. The purpose was, if I have this here, we know Tumblety has been advertising in the Capitol in November 1861. We found this right here, Buffalo Courier. This is November 1861. So some people that have claimed that uh, Tumblety was not in Washington, D.C. in 1861, this shows right here that it was before November 18th. By November 18th, that he's claiming he's been attached to General McClellan's, McClellan's staff walking up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. So it had to be before that. So, in this case, one of the other arguments was that if you look at it, and I scanned them too, when you look for his articles, he's got tons of advertisements in 1862, starting in February 1862, Tons of it about him being an Indian herb doctor. Like he usually did. It was like a full column of ads. At this time, 1861, he would not have wanted um, General McClellan to know about his Indian herb doctor specialty or that he's really promoting it because he was trying to promote his surgery, at him being a surgeon. So there's a reason why he would not have put those ads in there yet. And so in this case, Look at the guy, follow him. Uh, let's see, in this case, okay, let's see. I think I have see. Another Baltimore connection, Francis Timberley placed the newspaper advertising campaign in the Baltimore Sun, September 14th through September 23rd, 1861. So one of the arguments that they had was, Tumbley would not have been in Washington, D.C. before November because he had a big advertising campaign in New York. Well, he had the same advertising campaign going on in Baltimore. So you can't be in those two places. What he did was he had advertising campaigns, and it was easy to take a train ride to get there. But So it, right there is proof that he has two advertising campaigns at the same time. One is in Baltimore. Think about it. New York, Baltimore, D.C. There. Dunham claimed to have been seen, uh, let's see, in the Capitol a few days after July 21st. And uh, in 1861, the Battle of Bull Run, Riordan claims that Tumbley could not have been in D.C. between July and September. So actually, the Harper's Weekly, uh, Weekly advertising campaign was from July 21st to October 19th. So it's basically the same time. So then notice uh, some following articles that corroborate that he was, well, he was in the Capitol when the war broke out. So... February 1861, he starts his major advertising campaign. So, uh, for Indian herb doctor. But notice this. When the war broke out, this article says, when the war broke out, he appeared at Washington and once uh, was once gazetted as a surgeon on the staff. So, of course, he wants that. But, uh, let's see. Let's see. 
This one right here, 18, there's March 1862. So it was February 1862, he started the advertising campaign. But notice that it says about, in Washington, past six or eight months. That was an article right there in 1862. So they're saying prior to November. And then in here it says, uh, let's see, biography Carmen Cumming places Dunham in the Capitol. Now, so Dunham was in the Capitol, um, you know, it says November 1861. And the following Cleveland Morning Leader shows uh, right here, Tumbley, uh, November 1861. Again, he was there. So when he was showing the anatomical specimens, it could clearly easily have been November 1861. It was just in 1861. The issue didn't have to be the couple days after. But one of the things, though, is this 13th Regiment, Regiment, and I was talking to Chris a little, uh, last night about this, is that um, this, notice that this article is 1881. This is not when there was a tumbledee possible uh, sensationalism going on. And it says, when the 13th Regiment was in Fort Corcoran, Tumbley came around uh, mounted on a fine Arabian horse, and when the men who knew him asked where he got, uh, got it, his answer was my friend, Billy Seward. And notice that, in this case, that's Fort Corcoran, the 13th Regiment. Joe Chakuti actually made a comment about this, that it was before November 1861, but Tim said, made some comments that uh, Tumbley was in Washington, D.C., even after. So it could, it, it, this, it clearly could have referenced later. But what I found out was this. Fort Corcoran, the only time that the 13th Regiment was there were these dates, to October 1st. He was in Washington, but he switched to the eastern side when, he became, when uh, the 13th Regiment became part of the Porter's Division. And so it was a different place. Hills Hall, eastern Arlington County, that's where they were. So this report here saying Fort Corcoran clear, had to have been before October 1st of 1861, which would confer, conform to what Dunham said. So I have more stuff, but it's more kind of what it is. I pulled it out and didn't expect it. But any questions? That's fascinating. What is this? was obviously keen to write a smear article, since he puts in unnecessarily that that's when Gita wrote his letters. That's the session of Frank Garfield. So the New York City, you mean New York, New York the, the reporter? The reporter who writes the piece, who you say has found Dunham, and he's responsible for the hostile writing. You, you were saying Dunham isn't, because the reporter's found him. So, and the reporter is, even before he's found Dunham, he's trying to say, we're in a nest of bad guys, this is where Guido wrote the letters demanding an appointment, which led to his assassination of Garfield. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And it was really a case where here's, I mean, Dunham, at that point, Tumbledy was the big story, especially in New York City. So he was looking for stories. So the New, the New York World Reporter would clearly, I mean, I don't catch the New York World Reporter lying at all. He's just maybe got sucked in by what someone says, but he is passing it on in this case. And then I, I would just have loved to have seen it even before or after that Southern character. I would have liked to have met that guy. But, so, but to me it shows, you know, especially with, uh, oh, the thing I didn't show, I thought I had it on here, 
was H Street. I think uh, one of the in, uh, researchers said that the problem is, is when you look at uh, the 1862 uh, advertising campaigns of Dunham, they have him at uh, one of the expensive uh, hotels. It, it kind of uh, eludes me right now, I get, uh, but Willard House, the Willard House? Yeah. And so clearly he wasn't there. Uh, that's not H Street. Well, that was 1862. 1861, uh, oh, then I think uh, Tim makes the comment that there was nothing really on H Street. So why would he even be there? Because Pennsylvania Avenue was where all the action is. Well, there's a reason. Remember, he was, he was trying to follow around General McClellan. Guess who else lived on H Street? General McClellan lived on H Street. It's like there was an absolute reason. See, Tumblety wanted to be considered part of that surgical team. He wasn't going to do it. We all know that. But he's already, even in his later days, you can see he's already saying that he was a member of General McClellan's McClellan staff. I mean, that's a credibility thing where you can go use that. So, so he's following this guy around. How do you follow the guy? You got to be next to him to see where, when he leaves. So H Street is the most logical place that Tumbley would be. Not 1862, because now Tumblebee wants to show off and be there. And then, uh, but also, I think we were talking earlier, maybe it was last night again, you've got to come with us, because we, well, we, we solve the world's problems when we're <laughs> talking about this stuff. But there were those four medicines we were talking about, four different types. And one of the things that uh, Tumblebee was pretty much into three of them. One was the Indian herb doctor, which he's always professing, but he always wrote MD at the end of his name, medical doctor, even though he didn't approve of allopathic kind of style. But the other one was that French sexual disease stuff that he... And what he did is he got in trouble by McClellan. Not only him, but William Pinkerton was the one that said he got in trouble with McClellan because of what he, all those pamphlets he was selling about sexual diseases. So in 1861, he was promoting, trying to make money too, but promoting his French stuff. And that's what caught, got him in trouble there. Well, of course, in a place where military men were, a lot of the officers and men might have had the diseases that needed treatment. Oh, yeah, clearly, clearly. And so. <laughs> I have one other thing. And maybe Dr. Tomosa could, could help. It just something in my mind about something I read years ago. When were medical schools generally founded in the United States? Um, most of them were probably uh, in the 1830s, although there were medical schools back into, you know, the late 1700s. Yeah. Um, most, most of the professions in those days were basically uh, craft skills. You learn them somewhere. I mean, could it be possible that Tumblety might have had an apprenticeship with one of these doctors and and sort of went to privately to medical school and, you know, and well, learned Well, that's not what he claimed. Doctors who did actually become doctors. That well, way. we know, we know clearly his apprenticeship came with uh, Lyons and also Reynolds. Reynolds was the, the, that first man that was in Rochester, New York. So what happens is the reason why Reynolds, Elispinard, was in Rochester is because they were in Albany. That Albany in the early 1800s was a hotbed for this new French disease thing, you know, to cure syphilis and to do all. <laughs> and, so, and, and so he came to Rochester, and that's when Tumbley was a teenager, and Tumbley would go on the canals. And this is when um, uh, Captain Streeter, 
was one that was talked about seeing Tumblety as a teenager. Well, it's funny because uh, one of the researchers, Simon, said that he could not find William Streeter. I found him. It was pretty easy. I, maybe my background in genealogy helped me out. But the guy was an old guy. It was when his son was now ran the, the boat because he's an old guy. So he's no longer the name, you know, that's his son. But he was, he was the old guy that was talking about young Frank Tumblety at that time, going to Buffalo, Tonawanda, going back and forth, because Tonawanda's the other end. So, and then uh, there was an article in a Tonawanda a German paper. Oh, we should find it. So, uh, and then so you could interpret it. But uh, maybe I have it, I should check. So, but yeah, that, uh, that was when uh, he was part of the French disease thing because he was selling those pamphlets. And that's when Comstock was getting very upset. The man that actually ripped apart, it had the New York City police, January 1888, rip apart those anatomical uh, wax museum, you know, the, uh, the parts of the, uh, you know, the uh, anatomical venus and all that stuff. But then that's when, uh, that's when R.J. Lyons, the Indian herb doctor, went through Rochester, hung out, young, handsome man, he was, in, he was 30 years old, Lyons. So here's young Tumblety, who we already know favored young men, and even at that time, and they left together. And that's when we see now Tumblety in 1855 to 57 in Detroit on his own doing the advertising, and then he went through back, and then went into Toronto, yeah. and all the way to Canada. But it is possible that he might have, you know, studied with a surgeon. Well, I, I mean, this did is what, anybody ever see him try to do any kind of a surgical procedure? Well, here's what I want to talk about, and this, is, and this is a fun part where I could be dead wrong, but it's fun to talk to you guys about this. Here it is. In New York City, at that time, for these medical schools, Burke and Hare stuff in England, all this stuff was happening, or at Scotland, right? So the New York City and Baltimore, they were hotbeds for still getting cadavers, even though it was now illegal. But it, they were still uh, getting cadavers for the med schools. And Tumblety had a lot of connections, but you could see, and they would sell the cadavers. So here's Tumblety with, these boxes were portable boxes. So he came with him. He didn't do it in Washington, D.C. Months before, he's got pictures of anatomical things in his New York City office. This, again, this is conjecture, so don't, I mean, I'm, I mean if I'm wrong, oh well. But it's kind of cool. This is the beginning of research. Now we're going to look for something. If it's wrong, it's wrong. But what if he had the cadavers and he's practicing? Because if you're going to profess to a, a general that I'm a surgeon, prove it. So he better at least know some rudimentary things. So if he, and he certainly knew if Dunham was correct, again, we're always ifs, but like that he had these anatomical parts that he knew what they would look like. In that case, could he have done it? And that gave him practice? Possibly. Who knows? That Possibly, would make sense. But, that would make incredible sense. Yeah. But now again, Reality is different, I mean, maybe, but still, it's, it's real, as someone that loves to research, is now it just gives me paths to go and try to look for. I went to the uh, uh, Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Who's Philadelphia? So I contacted them, and they did this for me, and it was kind of cool. They had five uh, uterus specimens, 1884. By 1888, one was missing. 
So, so I, I asked the lady, I, she sent them to me. I haven't looked through them. She goes, did any uh, Frank Townsend, Francis Tumbley ever go into the Modern Museum in 1888 so, or 1887 or anything like this? So uh, wouldn't it be a cool if I found his name in that? So, but that was kind of the fun things because usually it's a dead end. But it's, One of the places you can actually look are uh, not necessarily medical schools or medical, uh, but uh, artists frequently did anatomical specimens. I mean, it goes back to the, to the Renaissance. And it wouldn't be unusual, say, for to find a uh, uh, an artist that an autopsy, or uh, maybe even more. Well, speaking of that, the uh, if I can find it, I guess I get uh, the the pictures. It didn't say photos. I mean, uh, would there have been? Uh, ex let's see, right here. Ex uh, Okay, outraged by the exhibition of certain anatomical pictures. I would almost bet that those are, are, are uh, prints, uh, printed prints, right. <laughs> rather than, than uh, photographic prints. Yeah. I would think so too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you think yeah. so? Yeah. And I wouldn't think company drew them. No, or, no, no. no. no I, mean, it's, I mean, this was good for business to, to exhibit those sort of things. And, you know, reassure patients that you knew what you were doing. <laughs> well, what's interesting about the office, though, his office was for any nerd doctors. He did have, we saw those articles that he had this weird uh, circulatory system with red dye, you know, it looks like a blood circulatory system that you know that he did. So, I was just curious, and you, yeah, having an option, and he was all about, in 1861, getting attention anyway, and that certainly did it, didn't it? We got it in the paper. I have so, some medical prints from 1787, which are very detailed, and that would be the type of thing that might irritate some people if they were exhibited. And uh, that's quite common to find those, uh, particularly in Italy, which, which has a tradition of, of anatomical. So I wonder if, like, in New York City at that time, there would be, let's say, specific artists that people would go to. I would look at bookstores. William Hunter's... Um, Volume. I think he had had 400 uh, granite cadavers delivered to his uh, headquarters in London in the late 18th, early 19th century. And the volume of engravings of the progress of uh, pregnancy in the gravid uterus, I believe, remained the standard work mm. that was used right down into the 1880s. Mm. And that so they, was at St. George's Hospital when he was in St. George's when it was in... Um, well, where they delivered to was um, actually uh, on the age of sofa. Okay. Uh, just off where the windmill theatre is. Okay, well, they have a lot of anatomy schools in that area, haven't they? Yes. And yes. also, that collection, if you come to London, the Hunterian uh, oh, Museums at the Royal College of Physicians. Yeah. I mean, you know, probably a lot of the ones he had, okay. some of them might be there. No, I don't think so. They, they, they're really basically separate. William Hunter was a well-educated doctor. He brought his brother, who was virtually yeah. illiterate, down to work with him. And he turned out to be a fantastic articulator of yeah. skeletons yeah. and a, a brilliant anatomist. And so the, the great thing about the Hunterian connection is the specimen examples he put together, because he could never have written it, um, I'm sorry, people, um, 
I won't go on about that, but if you're in London, for goodness sake, yeah. go to the Royal College of Surgeons and see the Hunterian collection. It would be interesting to see if you had a library. What was in that library? There's large folios with all kinds of words. You can't even did maybe word in the gallery. Respectable people. Thank you very much. And that was Michael Hawley with Dr. Francis Tumblety amongst the best suspects. I would like to, of course, thank Michael Hawley for making his talk as well as the incredible slideshow available to our listeners. You can find a list of all of his books on Amazon.com. And I'd like to thank Chris George and all of the Baltimore organizing team again. And most importantly, Robert Anderson, without whom these RipperCon broadcasts would not have been possible. And as I'm preparing each one for release, Robert is still involved in every step of the way. And so I really cannot thank him enough. We are a podcast hosted and sponsored by Casebook.org with now over 70 roundtable podcasts and event talks on Jack the Ripper, the Whitechapel Murders, Victorian Crime. You can find all of the episodes on Casebook as well as in the iTunes Music Store. And if you'd like to stop by for a chat, look us up on Facebook and on Twitter, where you can find us by searching out RipperCast. And I'd like to thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.